very often I hear from funders that they're looking for organizations that work in partnership with organizations. Like it's just this really easy, like, you know, hit the button and be like, great, we're going to run our programs with partners. But when you talk to charities and nonprofits, it's a lot harder than it seems. So today's podcast is all about how to manage partnerships between organizations in a way that actually furthers your work and doesn't add headache or add to the already full plates that I know you all have, right? So that's what we're diving into today, how to actually make it work and why you actually might want to consider this beyond checking a box in your funding application. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and you're listening to the Small Nonprofit Podcast, where we bring you practical down-to-earth advice on how to get more done for your small organization. You are going to change worlds, and we're here to help. So today's guest is Michelle Shoemate, and she is a professor at Northwestern University. She also has a consulting business called Social Impact Network Consulting and is the author of Networks for Social Impact. New-ish book at the time of this publication. It won't be super, super new, but again, she researches this and consults around this. And I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. So Michelle, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So as I said in the introduction, in my experience, very often the driver for looking at partnerships comes from funding. And I don't think that that's necessarily the most healthy approach. So can you talk to us a little bit about why partnerships and networks might actually have other benefits to our work? I think that one of the things to keep in mind when we're talking about networks, we're talking about really three or more organizations working together in order to achieve some goal. There's lots of possible benefits for small nonprofits when you work in community. One of the ways that sometimes at the start, small nonprofits work together is to reduce costs. Mm. So they might share, for example, back office expenses or pool purchasing or collaborate on technical assistance and support or insurance plans, right? All of those things are costly for a small nonprofit. And there's some real benefit in pooling together with other small nonprofits in your community and then having that power. Mm-hmm. And those are wonderful starts for collaboration. They're the low-hanging fruit. Sometimes what you want to do in a, a network is not just reduce your costs. Sometimes what you want to do is have a greater impact with your programs. Mm-hmm. And so that can happen because you are doing a true collaboration in that all the organizations are putting in joint inputs and there's one program that comes out of that. But that's not the only way it can happen. Sometimes there's ways in which clients of your programs are also probably interested in another nonprofit's organization's programs and so that you can share information and cross-pollinate in that way. And those are often, you know, next kind of level pieces. My favorite kind of way that nonprofits get together, and that's a benefit though, is not projects. Sometimes the way that they get together is really about learning. 
Mm. One of my favorite examples of this is the Chicago Benchmarking Collaborative. It's a group of six agencies um, in Chicago. They all work on adult education and early childhood education. They kind of do that two-gen model, right? And they get together not because they share any clients. There's not a shared client among them. They don't do any joint programming, none at all. They get together because they've agreed on how what they think is a quality preschool program, and they agree on what those outcomes are, and they benchmark their outcomes against one another. They do a shared data model, and that allows them to go, I thought that we were doing really great, but let me compare that score to what everybody else is doing. Oh, well, we're kind of middling. Who's really killing it right now? Let's go talk to that agency and figure out what they're doing. And often those results are really counterintuitive because you realize it's not like you have a totally different program. I mean, you're still doing preschool. You're still teaching ABCs, right? But it's something in that little bit of implementation that you're like, oh, we could totally do that. And so it's a way to improve the quality of your programs and services, not necessarily by sharing joint inputs, but by learning from one another. So there's a Mm -hmm. few examples of how I think the small nonprofit can really benefit from collaboration. I love that. And I think that learning and benchmarking is so interesting. There's a few projects that come to mind. I mean, by the time this podcast airs, the conversation I had earlier today will have aired months ago, but I was just talking to Tim Sarantiono from uh, Neon One, a database company, but they did this research project using multiple data, like entry points from a bunch of different databases to sort of benefit the sector and have a really clear picture on what's going on. But also in Canada, there's a group that's working on sort of trying to establish sort of a standard of reporting. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Anyways, they're really interesting. I haven't had a chance to talk to them on the podcast, but what they're doing is looking at, okay, how do we standardize metrics around the work? And I think to that point of how do we then use that as a benchmark and learn from each other and and all that. So that's a perspective I hadn't heard. One of the things you know, everyone will always ask because it's truly, I feel like the first question that comes out of the mouth of small nonprofits for pretty much anything is like, you know, how do we do this? Like, isn't that going to take more time to add this to the work that I'm already doing without it feeling like a massive burden? So Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about the conditions that make these kinds of relationships work. And let's start with there. I think that that's a very wise question that you get, right? So what is is really like, how do I get started? And really, how am I going to make this work given the constraints on my time? This is a lot of meetings. Is it really worth it? And I think it's true that if you can do a project or if you can do your work well, and you don't need another nonprofit organization to do it, to scale up your impact, you've got this, then by all means, go ahead, because this is going to take time and take resources. It is not true that collaborations make things cheaper always. Sometimes in terms of resources and staff time, this is pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. But that said, there's a, sometimes where you realize, you know, we did a root cause analysis and we are like this small piece of this overall problem. And if we're ever going to move the needle on our big social issue, we need partners who take these whole other branches of Mm -hmm. this particular problem in order to really get traction here, right? Yeah. And so you realize, okay, I do need to collaborate. I don't have all of this. 
And so if you're in that position, the first thing that I often recommend folks to do is to do an environmental scan and figure out, draw yourself up. So we do something called actor mapping in the book. And so there's a tools for network instigators in there, but I'll give you the thumbnail of it, which is that you think about all of the different pieces of the problem that you're trying to address. You put that client, that need right in the center, and then you start to map out all of the possible organizations whom you could work with. And they start to develop a plan about who would actually need to be at the table. And I think a little bit of foresight goes a long way. I was once part of a collaborative lurking on education, and particularly here in the U.S. and also in Canada, they were interested in education outcomes. Of course, education outcomes map on to some traditionally oppressed groups, right? But they didn't do an actor mapping exercise at the beginning of this. So they got six months, eight months into the collaboration. And lo and behold, they're like, oh, we should really invite a faith leader from this you know, minoritized community. That would be a really good idea to have them represented at the table. And it was like going backwards in the work because they should have thought of this at the beginning. They ended up to rehash every conversation they had had over the last six months of the collaboration because they brought this person in and they had a different perspective, right? And so it became a real hindrance. So doing a little actor mapping and figuring out who do you really want at the table first? And then there's a little bit of, you know, figuring out through a series of often facilitated conversations is there enough common ground here? Is there enough appetite to do this? Mm. And it often people want to get the first meeting for us to say, yes, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get going. Like we don't have time for this. Let's just keep moving. And that does not uncover a lot of the underlying conflicts that are likely to come about. Mm. It can often be counterproductive. So there's just a series of conversations where we learn, are we really ready for collaboration? What are the things that are holding us back? What are the assets that everybody's bringing to the table? And how would we go about setting this up? Like exploring those questions, because there's not one right way to do this. There's ways that work for a given context. And so you have to make sure that that happens with players. So that's the first kind of things that I encourage folks to do. And then at at any point during those preliminary conversations, you can walk away and you've had lunch with some nice people. You've gotten to know your community better. You've expanded your professional network, but it's not a huge investment yet. Like, Don't do this when you have the grant application looming and you haven't met with the partners yet, because that's not going to create a great experience for anybody. It's something you want to build up over time and really explore before you decide, yes, we're ready. Yeah. So And you mentioned that, I mean, it's in the title of your book, like networks for social impact. And I really love, I don't know, for some reason, when you were talking, I pictured the trivial pursuit little pie where every person has a piece or every organization, you know, is contributing to this overall strategy. And I'm wondering, do you need clarity around what that impact looks like at the beginning? Or are you co-creating that as you go? Like how much of a clear vision of where you want to end up do you need to have or not? So I think that there's two paths here to choose. And so this is like a create your own adventure novel moment, okay? So one path is that you set up and everybody agrees on. Perhaps you've had lots of collaborations with these same players in the past. You know each other, you've developed trust. Like this is, 
you know, same players, different name, right? Like so we've all been part of those, those conversations and you can go directly to that very specific goal. If you can state that goal in really concrete terms, the research behind it suggests you're much more likely to get there than if you wander around, right? But you need that pre-existing set of trust and relationships. Networks move at the speed of trust. And without that, then you're not really ready to go to that very specific goal. So door number two, right? Like flip the pages to the alternative ending of this particular book is that your preconditions aren't that you know each other and trust each other yet. In fact, you might have only really known these organizations as competitors before. There might have been some historic moment in which there has been a rupture of trust between these groups and like they hardly even get in the same room, right? You're not going to a specific goal. (laughs) You're going to wonder a little bit before you get there. And your first goal is often not the real reason you're bringing the collaboration together. Your first goal is let's create a win where we can begin to work on these relationships, where we can begin to build some trust. And then we're going to come back and we're going to see what the next step is. And it's a little more incremental. It doesn't move as fast, but your preconditions in that case don't let you move as fast, right? There was a group that I was working with is a collective around neurofibromatosis, which is this really rare childhood, primarily early adulthood cancer. That particular group, when they came together, had both one of the big organizations whose foundation in the area and the organization who spun off and left it because they were having such huge fights. Like, and we put them in the same room and we're like, are we going to going to do joint advocacy together? No, no, we're not. We're going to create a directory of providers, right? Like that was not the actual eventual goal for this collective, but we weren't going to be able to go as far because we hadn't had the development of relationships of trust and we hadn't started to put together those working relationships that had really atrophied over time because of the conflict among the funders mm-hmm. who were in that group. So I have a couple questions, but I want to start with, I've heard that before, maybe even from you, which is the networks move at the speed of trust. And I think very often when we think about these kinds of working relationships, we expect equality in contribution so that we're all putting in the same amount of whatever it is, time, money, et cetera. I suspect that's not necessarily like the only way to do it. So I'd love for you to talk about how to have the conversation around who's contributing what and what happens if it's not all like, you know, on the same level of contribution. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things that I've found work over time. You're absolutely right in your suspicion that it is a rare network who everybody puts in equal time, equal money, equal effort. There are often organizations who are have their mission being really centrally like spot on to that particular social issue. And then there are some organizations who that's a part of what they do, but it's not the whole thing of what they do, right? And so there's also varying levels of interest in the, what the network is doing because it's central to your core operations mm. or it's this kind of side thing that you do. A couple of recommendations I have. One, as I mentioned, having conversations around assets. And I think that's really important. And I often say it around assets rather than money first, Mm -hmm. because some organizations are going to come to the table and they can write a check and bless them. We love them. We want them at the table. That's great. 
but you might have a very small faith-based nonprofit or even a congregation or synagogue or mosque who come to the table and they're not writing you a huge check. They don't have a huge check. What they have though is relationships with the community that you want to help that you do not have otherwise. So the asset they're bringing to the table is those relationships in that community and that institutional trust that some of the other players might not have. Other groups might have expertise, right? So you have somebody who steps in who might be in a public health department or might be coming from an education center. Sometimes colleges and universities show up in these networks and they say, well, you know, we may not have the deep relationships and we may not be writing the huge check here, but we know how to do evaluation in ways and have access to data you guys can only dream about, right? Like they are in a different position. Having that conversation about who has what assets and putting that on the table early can really help figure out who should contribute what. Mm. And it's often trying to ask people to contribute based on where their assets are strong rather than asking them to draw from places where they, they don't have really very much reserve. Yeah, that's one piece. The other thing I'd say is I recommend this all the time, especially when you're first starting out, you need a contract. You need a memorandum, a collaboration contract, because the biggest fights that nonprofit organizations get in, in these collaborations is, oh, we're all putting things in equally and we're all making this assumption and we get to the end of it. And then somebody's talking about it in their fundraising materials and they only put their own logo on it. Right. And then we didn't get equal credit, but we all put in equally, but nobody had ever talked about it. Right. So Mm -hmm. that assumption about how you're going to be able to communicate about it, who gets to put what, where, how is it going to be framed, what assets groups are going to bring to the table, all of that needs to have a formal conversation around it. And I think it should end in a document. So I'm hearing consistently, a lot of this is openness and conversation, right? It's like, who needs to be at the table? And then once we're at the table, we have to continue those conversations. We have to be clear we should put it in writing. What happens when selling comes up that wasn't anticipated? Or, I mean, more broadly, how do we continue to manage that relationship if something comes up? Or as the terms of that agreement end and we look forward, maybe it's working really well and we want to continue. Yeah, I think not every collaboration has to last forever, right? Like this is not vows that organizations are taking out to endure together in these collaborations, right? Like that's not what we're doing here. I think it's good early on as part of those conversations to talk about when you're going to revisit whether the Mm -hmm. collaboration has run its course or not. Some collaborations are set up to have a time limit on it because they're creating a resource. They might be building a building. They might be doing a joint capital campaign, right? And when that campaign is done, we don't just keep meeting. We're like, okay, that's done. Let's move on to the next thing. And it might be a different set of players. And that's okay. The other thing is, and these are two different times in which networks have to really reconsider. Sometimes unexpected comes up for an organization at the network. So it's not the network as a whole, but all of a sudden for a small nonprofit, you have a very large leadership transition or you have a different funding circumstance come up where you had a long time relationship with a donor or with a foundation that ends for a nonprofit organization. There has to be ways in which they can exit the scene gracefully that you leave the door open later. Sometimes that's very formalized. 
So the Multi-Agency Alliance for Children in Georgia has the most formal of these I've ever seen. When a leader turns over in one of their agencies, they serve children who are in the foster care system and their families. But when an agency turns over because they've had an executive transition, they do not automatically assume that that organization is staying in the network. Oh, Instead, they put those new leaders, especially if they've been hired from the outside in a probationary year, they're not a full member of the network for a full year because the leader has transitioned, right? So they thought about that ahead of time. So having those conversations and thinking through what does it mean for you to be a member? What are we going to do in some of these things? And having plans can really help. Sometimes the crossroads moment is at the network level. Right. And so the networks I see also sometimes as a whole have this moment together of like, oh, why do we exist? What's going to happen here? This funder has changed. All of a sudden, well, our major program has actually been taken over by a different organization and we no longer do that program anymore. Why do we exist? And that's often an opportunity for a reset. And so many networks right now after COVID are doing a reset. They are thinking about, okay, our work really changed during COVID or it slowed down because our organizations were just staying afloat and everybody had to take like a backseat to this work. Do we want to keep going? And have in so many ways, that's revisiting some of those facilitated conversations you have at the very beginning, right? And trying to make sense of them again. Cool. I think this is so fascinating. We're running out of time, but I'd love to wrap up on an example or two, because again, taking it back to the impact, right? That there's a really clear purpose of why this makes sense for your organization and to do more together than we can do on our own. Can you share one or two stories of where this has been really successful for some organizations and what this looked like? So let me talk about a small town and then a big network. I'll give you two very different examples. Love it. So the small town is Grinnell, Iowa, population 9,000. That, okay, that's the whole sh- town. I have to <laughs> shout out to my friend, Rachel, who is a farmer. <laughs> she was on a farm in Iowa and I know she'll love this. So, okay. I think they Rachel. have a smaller well, this population. <laughs> this is for you. So they developed, they decided that what they really wanted to do was improve educational outcomes and career readiness for the youth in Grinnell, right? They don't have a lot of money. The local college there, Grinnell College, it is a little sweet college. They are beautiful buildings. Worked with the school district, local city officials, local youth organizations, brought them all together and said, Let's set a goal of really thinking about first literacy. We're going to see if we can improve literacy outcomes for our youth, and we're going to figure out what that looks like. But nobody had a lot of money because your small organizations in Grinnell, Iowa, right? Like all of the reasons, right? So they applied for AmeriCorps volunteers. AmeriCorps volunteers, you know, run lots and lots of programs in the U.S., They then, once they had those AmeriCorps positions in different organizations in town, said, hey, let's go and recruit different people than normally you would recruit for AmeriCorps. They went after retired school teachers to become AmeriCorps members. They found local folks who are were nearing retirement age or who've been longtime community members and asked them to step into these AmeriCorps roles. They created little working groups around everything from truancy to reading out of school time, those things. And they have transformed the educational landscape in Grinnell. They have some of the best reading scores in the state. 
And it wasn't that way before they started. It was a network that has mm, probably 13 organizations in it. Not huge, right? Because we're talking about like pretty much every organization. I was going to say that for now. (laughs) But but they were able to really be innovative and create these lovely programs and work together to get the whole town rallied behind their kids. And they transformed their town as a result, right? Like that, that's one of the things I'll give you a big, crazy example now in a totally different venue. So one of the national organizations that I really like and worked with in the past is America serves and America serves is all about supporting veterans, military families, and transitioning service members. And there's two really big commitments of these organizations. One of them in the network is that when a veteran or military family or transitioning service member asks for help, they're never told no, and that they should only have to request it once. Mm. So they created this very complex network of veteran-serving organizations that serves 21 categories of different kinds of needs, all the way from food assistance, which during COVID was huge, to things like physical activity and outreach kind of things, to social enrichment stuff. The organizations who participate in it are often not big But because they join together in a shared network, right, that if you have somebody who comes into your organization and they're speaking out just, you know, hey, I want to go and try this new kind of exercise with you, and you figure out they've got other needs, you know who to refer them to, and they use a case management system, a shared case management system, so that you know that the other organization in the network picked up the referral and they got care. You have a closed-loop guarantee of that across the organizations. The average veteran who comes into their network, they identify at least three needs that they have that are have to be served by multiple organizations to get it done. Wow. Their average time from when a veteran makes a request to when they actually get somebody picks up the phone and says, I can help you, is two days. Wow. Amazing. Mm -hmm. What a powerful testament to collaborating across organizations to the good of the work that we're doing in our missions. So I love that. Michelle, thank you for joining us today. It's such a interesting, I think this will be growing in how we serve our communities and our missions. So I really appreciate you sharing your insights. Where can our listeners connect with you? They are welcome to come and check out our work at the lab. It's nnsi.northwestern.edu. Or you can find me as Prof Shumate, P-R-O-F, Shumate, S-H-U-M-A-T-E, on Twitter. And I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm the only Michelle Shumate I know on LinkedIn. So it's really easy to find me. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. And yeah, it sounds like there's tons in that book to walk you through all of these considerations. And like I said, I think that you've really opened my eyes to the potential of collaboration beyond, you know, what we typically think of. So thanks for joining us. This has been so fun. Thanks so much. And of course, to you, our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.